Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 168, A Guided Tour. Dear friends, I write to you from the Queen of Cities. That's what the Greeks call their capital, the city of Constantine. And while I confess pride in our modest home and its venerable history, even she would bow before the Queen. There is only so much space in this letter to recount the wonders that I've seen, and yet I would consider it a sorrowful regret if I did not find at least some words to describe the experience open to those fortunate pilgrims who, guided by God, arrive safely on these shores. Our hosts provided us with a guide for the duration of our stay, Stilianos, a man of great knowledge and noble bearing. He led us on horseback through the crowded city, while his servant Zontos followed behind. Though carrying an unappealing visage, he had a quick mind, and knew the streets even better than did his master. All pilgrims must first visit the great cathedral church, the Hagia Sophia, as they call it, Saint Sophia, or Holy Trinity. You have never known a building of such immense size, though the structure itself pales into comparison with the treasures one finds inside. The huge doors carved from the wood of Noah's Ark, the icons of the all-pure Mother of God and of the Holy Saviour which vanquished the iconoclasts. The staff of John Chrysostom hangs on the wall, and most amazing of all these, the stone from Jacob's well, where Christ spoke with the Samaritan woman, lies in the sanctuary. The building is held up by beautiful columns of different coloured stone, some of which have the power to cure diseases. People come from far and wide seeking an end to their afflictions. We saw several desperate men rubbing themselves with vigour against the masonry. The whole building appears to be a well of healing, 
Zontos swears that he has seen people place the door bolts in their mouths in an attempt to find relief from dropsy. Stilianos spoke at length about each of the precious items and inflamed unworthy jealousy in me when he spoke of the relics we could have seen had our visit coincided with the Easter celebrations. During that holy week, the instruments of Christ's passion are displayed in the church. Oh, how fortunate are those who have seen the crown of thorns, the nails of his crucifixion, the linen his body was wrapped in, and the spear that pierced his side. Zontos attempted to ease our disappointment, though, by taking us to a little-known but most sacred location. He told us that when the great church was being built, the archangel Michael was sent to supervise the construction. When he arrived in the city, he found the workmen absent, and only the young son of the foreman in their place. Michael asked him where the workers had gone. The boy said, they were having lunch. The angel demanded that the boy go and fetch them. There must be no rest from erecting this house for the Lord. But the boy said he couldn't leave his father's tools unguarded. So Michael gave him a solemn promise that he would remain in that spot until the boy returned. So the young man ran off to find his father and tell his amazing tale. When the builders heard this, they asked to see the emperor to seek his advice. The emperor was delighted and instructed the boy never to return to that part of the church. That way, the building would forever have its own guardian angel on hand. As he told us this story, he revealed with a flourish that we were looking at the very spot where Michael still waits. Outside the church, there are many statues and objects of interest to see. You would not believe me, dear friends, if I tried to describe them all. Most impressive amongst them is a giant column that rises almost to the height of the great church, and sitting atop it is a statue of an emperor astride his horse. One arm is raised towards the Saracens, warning them to come no closer to the city. The other holds a golden apple with a cross on top of it. Our guides agree that the statue acts as a palladium for the city. As long as it stands, the heathens will never cross the waters. They disagreed, however, on who the emperor was. Estilianos claims that it is a representation of the Emperor Theodosius, while Zontos confides privately that it is actually Heraclius, he who brought the true cross from Jerusalem. I was inclined to believe this man, for despite his low status, he seemed to have access to knowledge that his master did not. He told us that the architect of the great church was a man named Ignatius, and that Heraclius asked him to build this column as well. However, 
as it became clear that the church's grandeur would elevate this man to the pantheon, the emperor grew jealous, afraid that his builder's fame would outstrip his own. Heraclius devised a devious scheme. He removed the scaffolding from about the column as Ignatius was working on it. The poor man was stranded high up in the air, certain to starve, as was the emperor's intention. However, the good wife of Ignatius did not abandon him, and late at night brought a rope with which to lower him down. The clever man tore his clothes into small but strong strips, and by this means was able to pull up the rope and effect his escape. So impressed by this was the emperor that he forgave Ignatius and allowed him to live out his days. Everywhere in the city one can find similar talisman protecting the people from danger. Between the great church and the racing track, we saw two statues intended to control the beasts of the city. Some copper snakes keep the local serpents from giving life-threatening bites, while some marvellous bronze horses prevent the imperial mares from neighing or whinnying in the emperor's presence. Both were made by the famous Apollonius of Tyana. Of the Hippodrome itself, all I can say is that never have I seen such lifelike figures. Men and beasts, frozen in motion, stand around and along its course. One of my companions says that in days past, the emperors would use magic to make these figures come to life for the entertainment of the crowds, though our guides said nothing about this. The next day, we were taken to St. John's Church in the Studite Monastery. There we kissed the body of St. Sabas the Cook, who prepared meals for the Brotherhood for forty years. We were shown a kneading trough on which the Holy Mother of God appeared with Christ. The baker of the communion bread was sifting the flour onto a board and when he poured on water, the Christ child appeared in the flower and cried out. The baker was terrified and ran to the brothers. The prior came and saw the image of the Holy Mother of God with the infant Christ on the board and rejoiced. From there we went to the monastery of the beautiful Mother of God and kissed the hand of St. John the Baptist and the relics of Simeon, the receiver of God, and of Gregory, the theologian. Next we went to St. Andrew of Crete's. This is a very beautiful convent where we kissed the body of St. Andrew. From there we went to St. Tarasius, the patriarch, and kissed his relics, and then to St. Euphemia and kissed her relics. We visited the church of the holy martyr Theodosia, killed by the impious emperor Leo for resisting the removal of icons. Stylianus tells us that Leo ordered a great icon of Christ removed from the palace gate, and that the nun Theodosia rushed to its aid, 
shaking the ladder which a soldier was climbing. The man fell and died from his injuries. The saint was arrested and executed by having a ram's horn hammered through her neck. She reposes high up in the church. We climb the stairs, and though I am but a sinner, kissed her relics. It was a day of much emotion for our party. We ended it with a visit to the Vlakernai Church of the Holy Mother of God, where her robe and girdle and cap live. They lie on the altar in the sanctuary, sealed in a case covered with iron. The casket is very artfully made of stone, and we sinners kissed it, along with the relics of St. Patapius, St. Anastasia, and St. Pantelimon. On our way back to our lodgings, we passed through several open spaces filled with antique statuary. Several in our party confess to finding the sight unnerving. Some portray half-beasts, half-men. Others, the most vulgar imagery imaginable. Zontos warns us not to get too close to them. Evil spirits can make them their home, and so no one will remove them. He tells us about an old pagan statue that was destroyed, and the spot where it had stood began to tremble. The ground continued to shake, and there was great fear that it would bring the whole city down around it. Only the intervention of St. Sabas himself quelled the movement. Far from correcting his servant, Stilianos relates that an acquaintance of his was killed by a falling statue. When inquiries were made about the incident, it was discovered that the whole affair had been prophesied centuries before. I would advise you, my friends, should you come to the city, to keep your distance from all such images. Our third and final day was just as full of wonder. Since it was Tuesday, we went to the procession of the icon of the Holy Mother of God. The icon is very large and highly ornamented. It was painted by St. Luke himself while she was still alive. It is quite wonderful to see. A large crowd gathered, and they sang a very beautiful chant in front of it, crying out with tears, Kiri Elison. It took seven or eight people to carry the icon out of the church, but they then placed it on the shoulders of one man, and by God's will he walked as if he was unburdened. He was blindfolded, and the icon directed him about, almost crashing into the crowd, but then being pulled this way and that. Afterwards, we travelled up the main street of the city. On the way, we passed through the Forum of Constantine. The base of his column is said to hold many treasures. The axe with which Noah made the ark, the crosses which the two thieves hung from next to our Lord, the baskets which fed the five thousand. Alas, 
we did not see any of these. But we did spy wealth beyond imagination. This forum is home to money changers whose tables are replete with gold and gems from across the oceans. Zontos tells us that two-thirds of the wealth of the world lies in the city. Again, I was inclined to believe him. This city is without doubt the largest and most beautiful in the world. The markets are overflowing with exotic food, the churches are all decorated with silver and gold, even Stilianos, merely a guide for our hosts, wears beautiful silks and a fine hat. Moving further along this street, we saw a great column which the emperors had raised up. Carved on it are images of soldiers and of war. Stilianos tells us that no one knows what they represent, but that many believe they show events yet to occur, perhaps even the fate of Constantinople. Only when those events unfold will men be able to understand the significance of these carvings. We then climb the hill to the second largest church in the city, the Church of the Seven Apostles. Inside we kiss the bodies of St. Spiridon and St. Polyuctus. Around the sanctuary railing we also visited the tombs of St. Gregory and John Chrysostom. Yet more amazing sights waited for us as we turned to leave. On the right side of the great doors stand two columns, one to which our Lord Jesus Christ was bound, the other at which Peter wept bitterly. They were brought from Jerusalem. Christ's column is thick and of green stone shot through with black. The other is thin as a small log, very beautiful, with black and white mixed stone, like clover. Going east through the church from the sanctuary, you come to where stands Emperor Constantine's tomb. It's large and made of purple stone, like jasper. There are many other imperial tombs there, and although these emperors are not saints, we sinners kiss them. There are still more wonders that I have neglected to mention, for we visited many churches along the way. We could have spent a year in the city and still not seen everything that could be shown. Thousands of relics reside here, making it truly a holy city. If any of you, my friends, should follow in our footsteps, then I heartily recommend Stilianos and his servant to you. Entering Constantinople is like entering a great forest. It is impossible to get around without a good guide, and if you attempt to get by stingily or cheaply, you will not be able to see or kiss a single saint. For now, I pray that God blesses you all. I will write again if he sees fit to provide us with safe passage to Jerusalem. Hello everyone. Yes, another flight of fancy, but one that the sources led me to. Hopefully you enjoyed hearing about Constantinople through a pilgrim's eyes. 
I did not make up any of the details of the city that you just heard. Every story is one told either by visitors to or residents of Constantinople. And every mistake that you hopefully spotted is included in their texts. I should confess that not every story relates to 1025, though. Several came from earlier, and most came even later, during the era of the Crusades and even after that. But I think they give you a pretty good sense of the experience of a foreign traveller to the city in the 11th century. And of course, they reflect the type of sources one can read. This is my slightly mock imitation of them. As I hinted at two episodes ago, the main reason that pilgrims came to Constantinople was to see the relics. The city could be easily bypassed on the way to Jerusalem, and there was no biblical connection to Byzantium, so the city had to attract tourists by gobbling up the religious items of the eastern Mediterranean. For Christians from across the west and north, this was a tempting prospect. So many great figures from biblical times, from the early church, and even of more recent vintage, lay in the city's churches and monasteries. I think today we all make similar journeys at some point in our life, whether it's to a natural wonder of the world, or a sports stadium, or Comic-Con, <laughs> some kind of location or occasion we hold in reverence that we travel a long way for. For the medieval pilgrim, the difficulty of travel and the spiritual significance of the relics made it an even more emotional experience. As you heard, once they arrived at a tomb, the custom was to kiss the stone which covered the remains of the saint and doubtless to pray while there. Prayers said in the presence of a saint's bones were said to have extra potency. Many of the accounts of Constantinople which survive ignore the city's infrastructure and instead present a dizzying array of deceased Christians whose body parts were supposedly housed at the capital. However, a few accounts do describe the famous monuments, and the topography of the city, and these texts have been very helpful in filling in gaps left by the relatively poor archaeological record. Uh, poor because the modern buildings of Istanbul are rather in the way. Allied to the insights we glean from these texts are plenty of errors, a fascinating combination of mistranslation, misunderstanding, and complete fabrication. The more I read, the more fascinated I became by the dynamic between host and visitor. The tour guides of Constantinople were both willingly and unwillingly spreading disinformation, both to get paid by the visitors and to provide them with an enjoyable experience. Listeners have often asked how much the average Roman understood of their own past and these accounts give us plenty of insight. Some traditions remain strong across the centuries, some mutated. Others sprouted up when they were needed. The past was malleable, 
For those who'd like to have all those stories unpicked, I have recorded a bonus podcast. In it, I will go through every story that you just heard, every mistaken monument and warped tradition, and explain where they came from, who said them, and where the misunderstandings lie. To do this, I'll introduce you to a cast of characters, Arabs, Crusaders, Vikings, and Russians, who all visited the city and recorded their experiences. Through their accounts, we also get some glimpses of daily life and little nuggets of information about the city that we wouldn't otherwise have. I'll also get to talk about the Byzantines themselves, the ones telling most of the fanciful stories you heard. As we examine their relationship to the ancient monuments around them, we uncover their understanding of their own past and see how hazy it could be. We also get glimpses of their feelings about the occult and the power of magic uh, hidden in those antique statues, as opposed to the power of miracles hidden in the tombs of saints and martyrs. The episode is 48 minutes long and packed with information. This is not an official Byzantine Stories episode, but I think it very much adds to our understanding of daily life and of Byzantine identity. That episode is available for sale now. Go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com and click on Sale Instructions at the very top of the page, or Buy Episodes down on the right-hand menu. If you're a subscriber, you should be able to see the episode now. For those not interested in that, I hope today's episode has given you a glimpse of the types of sources we have to work from and how historians get answers to your questions about what the city was like and what people said about it and what did they really understand. In our next few episodes, we'll be moving on to other aspects of Constantinople, its markets and traders and developments specific to the past century. However, you will have to wait a little longer for that, because as you're listening to this episode, I'm still in Istanbul. In the meantime, I have some more Listener Rewards episodes to keep you company until I return.